pray together. Lord, thank you this morning as we, as we are in this place of worship, as our hearts have come before you. So now we ask you, Holy Spirit, to open the scriptures to us. Would you take my words and fill them? Would you fill our hearts and our minds with the things of God that we might be led to Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So there's a whole series of, well, I guess you'd call them jokes, depends on your perspective, called the good news and the bad news. They all go something like this. I have good news and I have some bad news. Which do you want first? You guys know those stories? I'll give you a couple for instances. The doctor said to her patient, doctor, uh, the doctor said, I have some good news and I have some bad news. And the patient said, well, give me the good news first. And the doctor said, you have 24 hours to live. The patient was startled. She said, well, what's the bad news? The doctor said, I meant to call you yesterday. <laughs> good news and bad news. How about this one? Nancy phoned her husband at work, and she could tell immediately he was very stressed out. He had his work voice on. He said to her, I'm really busy, honey. Could we talk later? And she said, well, okay, but I, I do have some good news and some bad news. And he said, well, how about giving me just the good news for now? And she said, okay, I'll give you the good news. The good news is that in our new car, the airbags work perfectly. <laughs> now, think about that one for a second, didn't you? You see, the bad news was that she had a rack. Just for those of you who didn't catch that. <laughs> How about one more? The associate pastor said to his rector, I have some good news for you and I have some bad news. And the rector said, well, what's the good news? The associate said, I baptized seven people in the ocean today. The rector said, that's fantastic. What's the bad news? The associate said, the current was so strong I lost three of them on the way. I'm so sorry. <laughs> the good news is you're all alive. The bad news is I'm telling pastor jokes this morning. But welcome to Holy Cross. Well, last week we began our year-long, everybody say year-long, year our year-long journey to see Jesus clearly in 2020 as we go through the Gospel of Luke. We're diving deep. We're going to go through a lot of things that maybe some of you have perhaps not even seen along the way. Hopefully, by the end of the year, we're going to have a really clear vision of Jesus, who he is, and what he really means in our lives and in the lives of others. And so we began last week with Luke 1, the prologue, verses 1 through 4. If you didn't get to hear it, you can go hear it online. Basically, though, I'll give you a quick synopsis. Luke said that he was writing in order to give an orderly account. He's doing, in essence, an autopsy, Dr. Luke speaking. He's doing an autopsy. He's giving an orderly narrative account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to show what God fulfilled through his life, what God did in response to promises he made in the past and then was fulfilling even then in their midst. And so that we who read those words might have certainty, that we might rest safe and secure in the truth. In other words, as I said last week, Luke was not writing fake news, he was writing real news. And what we'll see as we go through the story, beginning with today, is that that real news of Jesus contains within it and around it both 
good news and bad news. And so we want to take a look at that, that theme of good news and bad news today. Let's look at the text together. We're going to unpack it a bit. So if you want to get out your scripture sheet, we'll look at Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If you're going there, as you're on your way there, you might be asking, well, why did we start in chapter 1 last week and now we're in chapter 3 if we're going deep into Luke? The reason is this, because chapters 1 and 2 are all about the birth narrative of Jesus, and that's called Christmas, and we just had Christmas. We'll jump into Luke 1 and 2 at the end of 2020 when we get back into the season of Advent, okay? So hold on, we'll come back to that, but you could read it uh, in the meantime if you'd like. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod, being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. We're getting the context of what's happening here, of this narrative, and it's filled right out of the gates with incredibly bad news and incredibly good news. Did you all catch it? Maybe not. You might have, you might not have. That's what I want to look at. It's not just that these guys have really hard names to pronounce. That's not the bad news. And the good news is not that you had to be up here, or you didn't have to be up here reading them today, and I did. What Luke is trying to show us is that the political system of the world and the religious system of Israel was completely corrupt. They were falling apart, and he does so by laying out who was in charge at the time. So he starts at the top, and he works his way down. He starts with Tiberius Caesar, the emperor. Now, the Roman historian, a guy by the name of Pliny the Elder, said this of Tiberius Caesar. He was the gloomiest of all mankind. And by that, he didn't mean he was depressed a lot. The guy was a train wreck. He was evil. He was cruel. He was vicious. Think of it this way. He was the evilest guy around. The guy at the top of the political power of the world was not a good man. That's what Luke is starting things out with. There's bad news. His reign was a time of instability and terror. The most powerful man in the world was the bad news. And then he begins to unpack. He starts going down in order of authority. Comes Pontius Pilate. He's the Roman governor who's over Judea in Israel. And his administration was full and marked by bribery and robbery. He was the head of the tax collecting system. So as we go through Luke and we hear about tax collectors, they all work for Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was making a killing off the Jewish people, and they hated him for it. He was not a good guy, and he'll play a part later on when we get to the trial of Jesus. Then you get these three guys, Herod, Philip, and Lysanias. Now, let me give you a little background on them. Uh, These are the sons of a guy by the name of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the guy who was alive when Jesus was born, and who was the one, you remember the wise men? Everybody remember the wise men from the east following the star? They come to Herod the Great. You can read it in Matthew chapter 2. And they say, we're here to worship the king who's been born. We're here to worship the king of the Jews. Herod the Great was the king of the Jews. So he was very threatened. He killed all the young children, the boys, in and around Bethlehem and in that region. Herod has died, and these three guys are his sons. 
Herod Antipas, we'll call him Herod Jr., right? Harry J., right? <laughs> Herod Jr., Herod Antipas is his name, and his brother Philip and Lysanias, okay? And, and basically what happened was the, the monarchy had been broken into four quadrants, and these three sons ruled over four different regions. Uh, one had... Uh, 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 Galilee, and one had Eturia and Trachonitis, and of course the other had Abilene. And they were all bad too. Only one of them plays really in the story, and that's going to be Herod, and he's going to be involved also at the crucifixion of Jesus. Okay, next come Caiaphas and Annas, right? And they are the religious authorities. They are the priests, the high priests, in Israel, the two most powerful religious leaders in the Jewish country and nation. Here's the problem. There's only supposed to be one high priest. By definition, a high priest is one. And it was supposed to be Annas, and yet Caiaphas, um, I'm sorry, Caiaphas and his father-in-law Annas was actually, he was the real power behind the throne or behind this whole political system. Think about these guys. They're like the mafia of the religious system. They oversee the temple, and in overseeing the temple, they've got all the money of the temple coming through them, right? And they were making a killing. They had a lot to protect, and they're both going to play in when it comes time for the crucifixion of Jesus. They will both be involved in the trial. Okay, you say. That's the context. Thanks for the history lesson, Chris. So what? I know, I can see it. A couple of you are like, so what? What does that have to do with my life? Well, in the midst of all that bad news is good news. And there's two points in particular I want to make about this context that he's laying out for us. The first is this, and it's for those among us who are skeptical, or perhaps those among us who are searching this year, trying to figure out who who is Jesus really. The good news is this. Luke gives us seven verifiable historical people and a certain time in which this all took place, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. History absolutely has documented that Tiberius Caesar took up office in A.D. 14. This is A.D. 28-29. Jesus was a real person who lived at a real time in the midst of history that was unfolding. Now, why does that matter? Because many people would say that the stories of Jesus, this whole thing is just made up by the church. No history outside of the church, the Christian realm, verifies all these people. The good news, and for some of you, you, you're okay with this or it doesn't matter, but for some of you, this is incredibly important. Luke says, I want you to have certainty about who Jesus is. So he's grounding everything in history. It all happened at a certain time, in a certain place, under a certain political system. That's good news. There's more, though. Look at verse 2. The word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Politics. Listen, this is important in in an election year. Politics. And this is also important if you've ever been burned by religion. Politics and religion get corrupted because they're full of people. (laughs) God's plan, however, is going to unfold 
despite what's going on in a political system. Okay? That's important to hold this year. Wherever you are in this whole political spectrum, and I don't, I don't, we don't play politics at Holy Cross, but I do care for the souls of the people who go here. Wherever you are in the confusion and the chaos, whichever side you find yourself on or lost somewhere in the middle, God is in control and is not bound by political systems. How do we know that? Because he moved at the time of a political system that was absolutely corrupt and falling apart. And here's the thing, throughout all of history, political systems, no matter how worthy they have been at various times, always fall apart somewhere along the way. That is the nature of a fallen world. And not only that, the religious system was corrupted as well. Which means this, and this may be particularly good news, if you've ever been burned by a church... Churches are full of sinful people and broken people. That doesn't mean that God will burn you. He is faithful and he is true and he is trustworthy and he is good. Now here's another thing. God's plan was not dependent or beholden to the economy working out in the favor of his people. His people were getting milked. They were suffering. The land which was good The products they were making were being taken away from them. So we have to understand when finances go up, finances go down, economies go up, economies go down, those things fluctuate and they change. And if we put our trust in any of those three things, politics, religious systems, or the economy, we end up making idols of them and they end up breaking our hearts along the way. But the Word of God... The word of God came to John in the wilderness. And that's incredibly good news. In the midst of the bad news of what was happening all around, the word of God and the plan of God were being fulfilled through a man named John. And John is not in the system. John is out in the wilderness. John is the one who was prophesied would come by an angel who spoke to his father. And then his father, in joy and adoration, once the boy was born, prophesied over John that he would be the one who would be the forerunner, the one who would announce the salvation that would come to Israel, that John's life was going to matter. John is out in the wilderness, and the word of God has come to him. His life was set apart. It was different. He was a man willing to be different from all the people around him. In the midst of the wilderness, his life was set apart for one purpose and one purpose alone, to announce good news and bad news. To announce the bad news of the status of Israel and of human hearts, and to announce the good news that the king and the true king was coming. He was the forerunner. He was the one who was shouting to the world that good news was on the scene, that God's Christ and Messiah, the rescuer, was coming Heaven's true king was about to appear. That spelled bad news for all who opposed him, and that spelled good news for everyone who would ever yield to him and yield their lives to him. Let's go back to the text. Look at verse 3. John went into all the region around the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. 
And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John declared bad news. Everybody say bad news. The bad news that he declared to them, and the bad news that we have to recognize is this. There are things in our lives, and things that we do, things that we don't do, that end up being barriers to God's work and our relationship with him. We have things that get in the way. And that's the whole imagery that is being used here from the prophet Isaiah, right? This word that was spoken hundreds of years before, that one would come, a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Well, what was he doing? He was saying, let all the mountains of your life, the hills be brought down, let the valleys be filled. Think about every valley of your life every low place. Maybe you can't think about all of them this morning, but think about what characterizes the valleys. Places that you're broken, places where you're sorrowful, where the world has caught up to you, where your sin has caught up to you, and you're low. Think about the mountains and the hills of life. These are the things that raise themselves up and prevent us from seeing God and experiencing God. For instance, pride is the mountain of our lives. Self-righteousness is the mountain of our lives. In other words, I'm okay the way I am on my own apart from God. That's self-righteousness. Idolatry is a mountain that blocks us from God. We find our trust and our hope in other things, like political systems and rulers and our money. Things like that become the idols of our lives And John is saying they must be torn down in order for you to be prepared for this king who is coming. As he's speaking it to these people, he's saying that the crooked places, right? The places where our lives have not lined up. And you all think about a plumb line for a minute. A plumb line is straight and a laser line is even straighter than that. Think about a laser line running right down your heart. And there are things within that are crooked, that are not aligned with the plumb line of God's word, of who God is. Those things have to be righted, he's saying. Those things have to be straightened out. And where they're out of alignment, we've got to deal with them. Rough places, the crooked paths, it's all bad news. You will never know the good news of God's love And the power of Jesus, if you will not get honest about the bad news that goes on, not out there, not in the political system, not in the economic world, not in the church, not with the rector or anybody else, but in your own heart, in your own life. See, that line runs right down your heart, right down your life. And of course, we find all kinds of ways to say, no, 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 I'm okay, And I'm particularly talking to the Christian right this moment. You've known grace, but there's all kinds of things that have crept up and are invading your relationship with God right now. Say, but I've got grace. Yes, you do. But there's some things that need to come down and there's some things that need to be raised up. There's some things that need to be straightened out. And there's some rough places that the Lord would like to sort within you. Not because... He wants to make you feel bad, but because he wants good news to come into your heart and into your life. The good news, though, and we get it there at the end of the Isaiah, 
passage in verse 6. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. See, the bad news is that we don't see God on our own. And yet the time was coming, John was announcing, and it had been spoken through the prophets long before him, the one who will be our salvation is about to appear. Salvation shall be seen not just by the Jewish nation, but by all flesh, by all those who would look and who would see, who would be willing to bring these things down, to raise these things up, to make things straight, to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, we may not have the power to fully deliver ourselves from sin, but we can turn ourselves to God. And that was the message that John brought. Baptism of repentance or the forgiveness of sins. That was so offensive to the Jewish people. Everything about John was like offensive. So on the days when you're offended by me, sometimes it's me and sometimes I'm just standing in the line of the spirit of John who stands in the line of the spirit of the prophet Isaiah. If it's me, let it go. And if it's the word of God that's offending you, then pay attention. They were so offended. It was, it was such a shocking message that he was bringing because he was saying, you need to be baptized. Now, this is a different baptism than we think about in the church. So, so we'll get to our baptism soon, but this is a different baptism. This is what the proselytes, the Gentiles, the outsiders did when they wanted to become part of the Jewish people. When somebody who is outside of the nation of Israel, who was not born in the line of Abraham and all of his descendants, became a friend of God or was a God-fearer and wanted to worship God and come into the Jewish nation, they had to be baptized. Jews never got baptized. They did some ritual purification. They got cleaned up in different ways. They never got baptized. And so John, out there in the wilderness saying, you must be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, was an absolute affront to everything that they had been taught, everything they had been trained, and everything they believed about themselves. And yet the crowds flocked to him. And why was that? Because things had gotten bad enough that they were willing to look at the truth. And sadly, the bad news is, we often have to have life fall absolutely apart before we are willing to look at things in truth. That's how deluded that we often are. That's how bad things get. And yet God in his mercy allows that. And in the midst of that brings good news to draw us back to himself. What did they have to let go of? They had to let go of all they were trusting in, everything. And that is always the entry into life with God or coming back to God when our hearts are under conviction. What is it we trust in apart from him? What is it you trust in that you find your heart running to, you find your identity in, you find your security in, you find your significance in? Those are the things that must come down. Those are the things that must be raised up. Do you live in self-hatred and despair? That's got to come up because you're a child of God if you've put your trust in Jesus. And that stuff's got to go. That can be a barrier to your identity and your relationship. And then that stuff the sin, the way we hurt each other and harm each other, that's got to come down. That's bad news and good news all woven together. It depends on which side of the truth of dealing with it you're on. Because I don't know about you, but my experience is often this. Like my heart breaks and I'm in tears before God and I'm laughing at the same time. Does anybody know what I mean? 
like you'll find yourself in tears because you're dealing in truth. And as you're dealing in truth, which is the beginning of repentance, God starts to move you into that place where the laughter and the smile comes. And you're like, I feel terrible and great all at the same time. Yeah? All right, a couple of you understand that. They had to admit that they had broken the covenant with God. So let's, what does that mean? Okay, let's think about it this way. The covenant that Israel had with God was that he would be the husband and they would be the wife. And so to admit that, pay attention, it's, it's kind of antsy in here today. That's a good sign usually. What they had to do was admit that they had been unfaithful to their spouse. And just like in a human marriage, in order for real healing to come, in order for restoration to occur in an event of unfaithfulness, there had to be forgiveness, there had to be truth, there had to be owning everything. As in the natural, so also in relationship with God. They had to fess up. They had to get real. They had to be honest with God and allow him to tear away everything that they were hiding behind, that they were afraid of, ashamed of, that they were taking confidence in apart from him. That's what it meant as they went into those waters of baptism. It was a humbling thing. But why did they need to be humbled? Because the king of glory was about to show up, and he wanted them to be prepared so that they could receive the good news of who he is. So that they could really receive the good news of who he is. Other things had to be torn down in order for that good news to come in. And so they were called to repent, which is way more than just being sorry for getting caught. It's more than just remorse, although that may begin the process. It is an ongoing, conscious decision to turn away from life under your own steam. To turn away from whatever the sin might be, but also this, and this is so important. Everybody look. Turn away and turn to God for freedom. It's not just turning away from something. Oh, bad. Shouldn't do that. Turning away and turning to for freedom. And that is the good news. That is the good news Jesus' life brings. That is the good news that the Spirit of God brings, that there is freedom for those who turn to him. And that freedom we'll see as we unpack Luke comes through one person, through Jesus Christ, the one who has come to set captives free. We've got to turn to him in order for that to happen, and we've got to place our trust in him in order for that to occur. John said, look, you'll know this is occurring when you begin to produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. John knew that they were an incredibly religious people, and, and we who are a liturgical people, right? We have a service we follow. We wear vestments and robes and things like that. We can become religious people too and just go through the outside motions and never have our hearts broken and real along the way. That is the greatest danger with religion is that it would be a form that lacks power, that we would be confident in the externals and never have an internal change of heart that then leads to an external change of life. And so John said, I mean, he was not secret friendly at all. You brood of snakes and vipers. <laughs> like if I said that to you guys when you're at the door, good morning, welcome to Holy Cross, you're a viper. 
Like, that's not in the, in the book they give you at seminary, how to grow a church. And, and yet it grew something because even though John was very John-like, the Spirit of God was bringing good news through him that there was freedom coming. But John was saying it can't just be an external action. That's why I said, don't say we've got Abraham as our father. God can raise up children from the rocks for Abraham. No, no, no. Let your lives come in line with what you say you're doing. When God begins to convict you of something, then let your life begin to line up with that conviction. And so if he asks you to stop something, okay, stop. You know the story of the guy who was a watch thief? And he stole the watch, and then he he was stealing all 50 a week, man. And then he came to Christ. And the pastor was excited, was talking to him. He's like, how's it going? You know, a few weeks into it, he's like, man, I'm doing great. I'm only stealing nine watches a week now. (laughs) You see what I mean? I mean, I guess that's progress, but it misses the point. John's saying, allow your lives to line up with what you say you believe and have done. Bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Let me close with a story. And it's a story, and I, I, you know, I share a lot about my life, my family, about my story, because, because it's not because I want you to look at me. It's because I want you to see this is kind of how it works in real life scenarios, about repentance and bearing fruit in keeping with the repentance. Many of you know my story. I came to faith uh, later um, And the person who harmed me the most in life was my father. Flat out, across the board, broke my heart, broke my mother's heart, broke his parents' heart, broke his sister's heart. He broke the heart of everybody in his life because he was a drunk and he was a promise breaker. Now, he did have PTSD from Vietnam, undiagnosed. But still, he hurt everybody, and particularly me. When I came to Christ... And I was forgiven of all my sin, my drug dealing and all the brokenness. I mean, there was, man, I got a truckload of junk that I was forgiven for. Um, You think you're bad. So God said, if my forgiveness is real in your heart, Chris, then you must forgive him. And that started a process of about two or three years. I mean, working through forgiving, 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 forgiving. You know how many times I forgave? I have no idea. As many times as it took, and it was daily in certain seasons. By God's grace, I got to lead him to Christ before he died of cancer related to Agent Orange exposure in Vietnam. Now, here's what I want you to see about the fruit of repentance. I repented of my sin God asked me to forgive because I had been forgiven. I did it in obedience to what the Spirit of God was convicting me of. I began to forgive the person who had harmed me the most. That opened his heart. He responded to the gospel. I got to share Jesus with him, and then he repented too. And here's how he repented. He didn't look like us. He wasn't in church on Sunday morning over those last six months of his life. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be in church too, by the way. What I'm saying is he, had, he didn't have enough time to get religious. But he repented, and he did it like this. He apologized to me, the person that he had destroyed. 
he apologized and blessed and prayed over his first grandchild who was born. And the things he never gave to me, he poured out upon her in blessing. He married the woman he had been dating and living with for the last 20 years, and she was able to get his benefits from the VA. He went to his sister, and he apologized and repented for the way that he had harmed her. And even most importantly, he apologized to my mother, and he apologized to his mother, and he apologized to his father, the people he'd let down the most. That's fruit in keeping with repentance. And the effects, the effects are extraordinary. They continue to this day. We have bad news this morning, and we have incredibly good news. The bad news is we need to repent. We need to turn to God. The good news is he's already accepting us. Because as the story unfolds in the weeks to come, we're going to see the salvation of God given in Jesus. He's dealt with it all. Ours is to simply allow him to do it by being honest and coming to him in faith and then responding to his spirit along the way, day in and day out. We have the best news in the world. Your sin is not the last word. Jesus is. Let's pray. Oh Lord, have mercy this morning. It's, it's a strong message, but it's a message that needs to tear down those things, Father. Tear them down in my heart. Tear them down in our hearts. Because, Lord, we, we would like to see you clearly in 2020. We would like to see you pour out in new ways and new power in each of our lives and in the life of this church and in the life of the community around us, in our families, in our homes, in our jobs, in our schools, Lord, in this community. So, Lord, thank you that you take us to John right at the outset. But not really to John, to the message of John, that we would repent and make straight the way We prepare our hearts for the coming of the King. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray in your name.